Uh, real quick, just uh, want to take care of some business. If you do not have one of our information sheets for this hour, would you please raise your hand? We've got a couple of lovely ladies here willing to pass those out for us. Anybody in the balcony? Okay, so we got one in the balcony, too. Anna, there's two upstairs if you want to. Hey, can you take one to Brian over there? Oh, George is getting me. Hey, Rebecca. Rebecca, there's somebody right over there. And just take a moment here and make sure everybody gets one of these papers. We have some right here in front of the pulpit as well. I know some of you are making your way in. If you do not have one of our information sheets for this uh, hour's conversation, uh, just please raise your hand. We'll make sure one comes to you. Okay. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and, and move forward here. I want to thank you for being here, First Baptist Church, uh, here in our 10 o'clock hour. As we break away from our regular, regularly scheduled Sunday school time, and we're going to enter into a time of uh, conversation with our friend Bill Newton. He comes all the way from not just Hot Springs, his hometown, uh, but he's spent the whole weekend in Pine Bluff doing a, uh, a D-Now for uh, multiple churches that's gathered together. And so in the last two days, he's already spoken five times. And then he comes today to speak twice to us before getting to go home and be with his family. So uh, let's show him a little mercy. So we're so thankful to have Bill here. He's a good friend um, and uh, specifically invited him to come and talk about these two important topics. The first hour uh, in the context of self-harm, cutting, uh, self-injury of any sort, and then in the second hour talking about pornography. These are two topics that very recently we've talked about in the student ministry and um, we felt that it was important to bring to the rest of the church to kind of bring everybody else into the loop on this conversation, we realize that all of this conversation doesn't necessarily touch teenagers. This is something that the body of Christ is being affected by in a big way. And so we wanted to address it and not just be informational today, but, but that perhaps as we prayed this morning together that the Lord might set some captives free today. Amen. So we want to see God do his mighty work uh, through this conversation. Now, Bill has uh, said been a good friend and first kind of connected through Super Summer, and he's been teaching at Super Summer since 2002. That was the first year I ever attended, so that's pretty awesome. Um, but uh, some of you already know that Bill writes the curriculum for camp, and uh, he's also been leading uh, what's called Camo School for several years now, which is for our graduates, and it prepares them for life beyond high school in many ways, whether it's talking about reliability, reliability of the Bible or proof of the resurrection, all the way to the topic of abortion and, and finances and things like that. So it's been very practical, very helpful, and he's uh, very knowledgeable in these areas. 
and just a good friend. And many of you guys were blessed by when he came um, on a Wednesday night a while back and spoke to us about homosexuality and the Bible uh, as a hot topic in our culture at the time. So um, without further ado, I just want to go ahead and invite Bill up front and uh, thank him for his ministry in advance. Well, good morning. Let me congratulate you, first of all, on being here at 10 o'clock and not thinking it's 9 o'clock. Well done. If you use your phone as an alarm, that helps that the phone automatically updates, right? That, that changes a lot. So that helps tremendously. Um, man, I'm, I'm thankful, glad to be here this morning. Um, I guess I, I get to be like the uh, a designated hot topics guy for First Baptist Valonia uh, every time I come, which I love doing it. I love talking difficult issues. I love wrestling with difficult things. And so we've done some apologetics things here, like why we believe the Bible, some other things. As Bobby said, we spent a, uh, a night, one night, just kind of wrestling through same-sex attraction, homosexuality from a scriptural standpoint and from a practical standpoint. And then this morning we get to hit the, the, the very uh, light subjects of cutting and self-harm and then pornography in the 11 o'clock service, all right? So uh, uh, my, my hope is this is a, a helpful time to you. Uh, one of the things I love to do is to have the opportunity to teach, to have the opportunity to... Um, help people wrestle with deep things of scripture because honestly I, sometimes I think we miss out on that and that's where the growth happens that's where stretch happens uh, it's not always comfortable honestly it's not always easy but it's something that's much needed to dig in deep so uh, this morning uh, in the 10 o'clock time the, in, in, in our time here we're not going to spend so much time in scripture as we are just kind of breaking down this idea of cutting and injury and self-harm because this is a fairly new, fairly recent phenomenon that has come about. So uh, uh, no fill in the blanks. I've tried to pretty much give you my entire set of notes so that you can just follow and process through. This may be something new to you. Uh, this may be something that you've heard about but not had a lot of interaction with. Chances are, especially for the younger students in here, for the teenagers and for those of you who are maybe college age, you will probably know somebody who is involved in this. And there's a chance, honestly, that you may be involved in this in some level yourself. Uh, it's a really common phenomenon uh, among teenagers, among college students, even 30-somethings. So let me pray for us as we get started with this, and uh, we'll walk through um, I'll, I'll probably say this in the 11 o'clock hour too, but know this, I like interaction. I don't like to just be a talking head. So if, if you have a question or something's not clear, feel free to raise a hand uh, and would love to do some interaction with you in the time that we have. Bobby's going to, you're going to help me keep on time, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my watch up here too just to help me out. So God, thanks for today and the chance to uh, talk through some, some difficult topics that people uh, in our culture, in our society, people that we know in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our sports teams, in our places of work, maybe even in our own home, struggle with on these two issues. We want to ask now, especially that you'll just guide us as we talk through this issue of cutting and self-harm. Give us uh, understanding, give us wisdom, give us eyes of compassion, um, and, and pray that this will be a help. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 9, for just a minute. I want to show you a, a, a picture that, uh, 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 in Scripture, something that happens that, um, man, just a, as a youth minister, that I, I feel like is a Scripture that relates to, to everybody, but especially for teenagers, it's just something when I read, I think about teenagers. Uh, as you're turning there, let me say this. Uh, one of my undergrad degrees is in psychology, but I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. Uh, I'm not a professional on that end of the spectrum. So... Um, 
the things that I will share with you today on this, I've tried to put this on there, are two people that I have learned greatly from on the issue of cutting and self-harm, and that is uh, Dr. William Weiser, who is down at OBU. Uh, he's a professor down there, been down there a long time. He has a great talk that he does that he calls Wounded um, on, on counseling issues for adolescents. And so uh, a lot of these notes come from him. And then another guy named Dr. Marv Penner, who wrote a great book I'll share with you called Hope and Healing for Kids Who Cut. Uh, and it's an excellent, excellent resource. So I did not make any of these notes up. This is all stuff that I have learned from other people. So I'm just going to pass on to you and try to help you understand things that they have helped me understand in this area. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38, actually through 36, just 35 and 36. Um, It says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. But verse 36, And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When I read that verse, I think of the generation of students that I get to work with. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of um, difficult issues that students today face that for some are really, this is the first generation that has dealt with some of the things that, that, that we'll discuss and many things that we, would, we won't have time to discuss. So on your sheet, uh, not to be just too uh, intellectual with you or academic, but I'm just going to kind of walk through this sheet and try to help you understand some things if this is new to you. And again, like I said, if you have anything, just raise your hand. If I don't see your hand, just start waving or jump up and down or you know, holler, whatever you need to do, all right? Um, so the idea of cutting and self-injury, that has been around for a long time. But if you talk to people in, in psychological and sociological circles, before God called me to do this, when I was trying to figure out what God was calling me to do, uh, I worked at a lockdown facility in uh, Little Rock called Youth Home. I don't know if you ever heard of Youth Home, but it's students who, uh, they're just in a difficult place and they need some, some extra help more than their family can give. So sometimes students voluntarily go there, sometimes they're court-ordered to go there. Uh, they stay there. It's almost like a little college campus where they have houses and dorms where you stay. Uh, the, the, the difference between that and say a college campus is uh, all the uh, houses have double deadbolts on them, so you have to have a key to get in and get out of the house, and they have the padded rooms, and part of your training is how to take kids down and put them in straight jackets. It's that type of facility for, for students who really need some extra help. And so that was really the first time that I had really ever encountered students who cut and who do those kind of things. And so what you, you begin to learn is up until about 20 years ago, and it was about 20 or so years ago that I worked at that facility, it was just at that time that things were beginning to change. Before then, everything was lumped together with suicide. So if, so, so if a student was cutting their arm, the assumption was that they were trying to commit suicide. But what, what has been discovered in the last couple of decades is that there's a big difference between suicide and self-harm and cutting. Suicide, the intention is death right? Like, like someone is trying to end their life. Cutting, that is not the goal. The goal of cutting is to deal with pain, a lot of times emotional pain, or to feel in control because of a situation that's going on in a student's life because they feel out of control. So the first thing to know is there is a big difference between suicide and cutting because the, the idea behind why somebody does that is completely different. Um, a lot of adults say they don't know someone who cuts or self-injures, but if you talk to some of the teenagers in the room, my guess would be a large majority, if not all of them, will tell you that they know someone who cuts. Uh, just last week, I was with a, a 13-year-old girl who I've gotten to know the last couple of months, and uh, we were just having a conversation. She's in a really difficult family situation, and we were talking, and she had on long sleeves, and it was a warm day, which is a sign, 
right? And, and I noticed, and the sleeve went up just a little bit, and I started seeing all these marks on her arm going long ways, like from side to side. Not up and down, but side to side, which is a lot of times how that happens. And that was a clue that something was going on, right? So I pulled up her sleeve, and like from here all the way down are just all these little marks. There were probably 20 or 25 of these little marks where she had done some cutting. So this is a common deal for teenagers. Sometimes it's in places you see, sometimes it's in places that you can't see. So what is cutting? Let me give you a couple of kind of definitions of it. It's the act of deliberately inflicting pain or injury to one's own body, usually to alter or change some type of feeling that they're experiencing. For the person who does it, it's often viewed as self-care, not self-harm. They don't see what they're doing as hurting themselves. They actually see it as, as, as a help to them. And we'll explain the psychology behind that in just a minute. And as I've already said, it's different from suicide, okay? Cutting has a completely different end goal than suicide does. So there's a lots of different ways. Cutting, really, probably, a, most people refer to it as, as cutting. Probably a better term is self-harm or self-injury because it's not always just cutting. But here's some different ways that you see this. You can see it in somebody scratching themselves, their hand, their arms. You see that a lot. Uh, using an object, it can be a paper clip, it can be a razor blade, it can be something sharp, it can be an eraser uh, that will do some type of damage or some harm to the skin. They'll use their fingernails, they'll find ways to sort of small, gently rip their skin, they'll find something to carve on themselves, they'll, instead of cutting, they'll actually carve a name, they'll carve a word. Um, it's not uncommon, honestly, to see students carve some type of curse word into their arm, I've seen that happen before. Uh, we've had some students that we've had to deal with that. Uh, interfering with some type of healing. So if they have a cut that's scabbed over, right, they'll peel that scab off as a part of that. Uh, burning. Uh, girls, I haven't seen a lot of girls who do this, but I hear of guys and have, have met some guys who do this. They'll use lighters uh, and actually burn themselves. You know, when you, when you flick a lighter, and it, the, the, the metal part gets really, really hot. So they'll let that get really, really hot, and they'll let the flame go away. So it's just the hot metal, and they'll press that on their skin. And they'll burn that. So, again, it's not always just the cutting. There's other ways to do that. Uh, rubbing objects into the skin, pulling hair is one for girls you see over, over time as well. So here's the question for those of us who, who have never done this that, that people are often want to know and are perplexed by. Why? Right? Because if you're in the right frame of mind, you're, you're thinking, why would you want to do that to yourself? Like, what is going on in somebody's mind that they see that not as self-harm, but they see that as actually caring for themselves? So here's some things that go on. Sometimes it's just an inability to think correctly, especially in very tense, very stressful, very out-of-control moments. Um, it's an emotion such as rage. That's a common one, okay, that can't be expressed toward a parent or somebody else. So they have this ball of feelings, but they're, they're not being allowed to express that, and they need a way to let that out. And so in their mind, by doing self-harm, because of some other things that go on we'll talk about in just a minute, it helps them to feel like that they are in control, and they've been able to let out those ball of feelings. You know just sometimes how you just want to scream? Yeah? No? Just me? Okay. Well, if you ever experience that, let me know. We'll, we'll be, all right? So sometimes you just kind of feel, and you, you're like, oh, I just got to get, and so somebody will punch a wall, right? Somebody will punch a mirror. Somebody will throw a ball. Somebody will kick something. It's that same kind of idea, but instead of doing that, they choose to self-harm instead of punching a wall or whatever it may be. Um, it can also be combined with depression, some type of anxiety disorder, uh, being abused, okay, or some other type of trauma, some type of personality disorder, or some type of uh, uh, PTSD if they've gone through some traumatic uh, things such as sexual abuse, physical abuse, something like that at the hands of uh, some authority figure in their life. 
A lot of self-injurers will say that when they hurt themselves, their mood or their emotions, and this is a key, okay? A lot of them will say as soon as they commit that act, their mood or emotions change. It's like flipping a light switch. It's like all that stuff that was balled up inside, all this stuff that was going on, as soon as the self-harm and the self-injury begins, it's just like a release. It's like everything is just able to flow out. And so it's, it's really more of a release. Two things. One, it takes away the overwhelming emotions. And two, the self-harm, they say, actually can awaken their emotions. And they say they now feel, instead of being dead, although they had all this energy on the inside, all this anger, whatever it may be, they, they, they will describe themselves as now they feel alive. They don't feel dead. They feel alive, which sounds really contradictory, but that's a common testimony from people who are self-injurers. Is, again, there's a lot of psychology uh, and actually a lot of biochemistry, neurology things that go on here. So if you wanted to summarize it, you could say this. For most self-harmers, this is about emotional management okay, and or what they would call survival. In a cutter's mind, this is not leading to death. It's actually leading to life. Right? It's helping with that. So here's some facts. The brain releases endorphins. Right, which make you feel good. Those are those feel-good things that the brains release. The brain releases endorphins when the body is cut, and that brings an immediate sense of relief and calm for the emotional pain that they're experiencing. So there is this almost like a rush that comes with, and then that wave, all right, what, you, what some people would call a runner's high for those who run, and you just kind of hit the wall, and then you break through the wall, and you, you experience what, what some uh, marathon runners and different athletes will call the runner's high. It's that same type of ideal for a cutter. It, it releases those endorphins and just causes everything to just kind of calm. It can become a habit or an addiction. Okay, the brain can, can grow to crave the release of endorphins. So this is an addictive behavior if it goes on long enough. The brain wants that release. No different than drugs are, are, are the effects that can happen with pornography sometimes. It's that same type of chemistry in the brain that goes on. Uh, cutting the self-injury is often turned um, to regulate emotion emotional pain because normal coping mechanisms have not worked for them, okay, or they haven't been taught. So sometimes it's just that students don't know how, or people who do this, they don't know how to process their feelings. Nobody's ever taught them how. They've never been in a situation. Uh, They may have grown up in a family where emotions weren't allowed to be expressed, or it might not have been a healthy family as far as conversations go, or they may just be in situations where they're out of control, uh, and and this is their way of trying to control that. And so all they know to do is that in order to get those emotions out, they know if they cut or they do this to their body, then it helps them to feel better. And it gives them a release from the pain. It helps them psychologically. It helps them emotionally. It calms them down. And so for them, this is the answer. Whereas some people would sit down and talk about it, right, and work it out and figure out a strategy to fix whatever the problem was, this is the only way they know to fix the problem. Nobody's ever taught them otherwise. Uh, Cutting reveals the mind has lost its perspective on what's going on at the time and moves toward wanting to self-harm so that an immediate solution can be had. So it's this idea that it's just, it's just a skewed way to look at the world. Again, because sometimes they're just not taught the proper ways to process pain. So what are characteristics of people who are, who, who are at risk for self-injury and cutting? This is, general, right? this is all generalized. If it was a specific case-by-case basis, we could talk specifics. But here's a lot of things that you see. Though anybody is at risk, females are four times more likely to cut or self-harm than males are. I talked with um, 
about a week and a half ago, I talked with a uh, lady who is a therapist at one of our local schools, and we were talking about this because we were kind of working with a girl. She and I were working with a girl, the one I mentioned earlier to you that, that was cutting last week. And so we, we, we were kind of talking about this, and I actually had her come talk with my students two or three Wednesday nights ago just to hear from a different perspective on this. Had a couple of counselors come in that are associated with our church and with our local schools. Um, and that's one of the things that they talked about was that they have seen a, a small handful of guys who self-harm or injure, but by and large, the majority of the cases that they deal with are females, not males, though that, though that does happen. Um, it's people who struggle with their sexual orientation or who are trying to find their identity, whether it's sexual identity or just their identity in general, are more likely to do that. Folks who have low self-esteem, people who are risk takers, people who have acceptance issues, if they feel hopeless, if they have a feeling of worthlessness, if they have suicidal thoughts. And again, there can be some overlap, but there's really a pretty clear distinction that has come about. They have trouble expressing emotions. They have a history of severe family dysfunction. Stress and or bullying is going on in their life. They have a lot of high stress and or they're being bullied by school or even at home. They have some type of abuse, whether it's sexual or physical in their background, and some type of substance abuse. Okay? All, those, all those are common factors in people who, who self-harm, who cut. Again, not across the board. There are exceptions to every rule, right? But for the most part, these are a lot of the common characteristics you will say. I will say in 20-something years of youth ministry, every student that I've ever dealt with who, who dealt with cutting or self-harm, I could probably check off two or three or four things at least on this list that's somewhere in their background. Because, there, again, <clears throat> there seems to be something with, with, with the brain and how it processes, and so there's a lot of these commonalities that show up from those backgrounds and from those stories. So what are some warning signs to look for? And again, these are general. There's probably some things not on this list. But look for unexplained wounds or scars from cuts, burns, and bruises. All right? And there's always a reason. There's always an excuse for somebody who's trying to cover it up. Now, some, some people will admit that they do that. But for people who want to hide it, much like abuse in the home or abuse from you know, a, a dating relationship or whatever, there's always an excuse for how that got there. There's always... I'm clumsy. That's a big thing to look for, right? The clumsy excuse. I'm always falling. I'm always tripping. I'm always whatever. And so that's how I got this particular issue. Uh, blood stains on clothing, towels, <clears throat> or bedding, uh, and blood-soaked tissues. I had a girl probably a year ago. I had the parents call me because they began to suspect that their daughter was cutting because they noticed on the clothes, especially the sleeves, there was all these just really small blood stains. And the you know, the mom was like, it's just weird. Like it's in a weird place, right? And it's just kind of random. And so as she was doing laundry, she began to notice. And that was sort of their, their, their tip off that something was going on with their daughter that she was cutting in places that they couldn't see because all these blood stains were showing up. So I gave props to the mom for noticing that kind of stuff, right? And being proactive and calling and saying, hey, I think something's going on. And come to find out, she was. All right, she had been cutting. And so we were able to get her help and get her in a facility and She's doing better, thankfully, right? But it's still one of those deals as a parent, you're just kind of always on guard now knowing that that has been there. Uh, claims to have had frequent accidents. We talked about that. A self-harmer may claim to be clumsy, you know, in order to cover the injuries. Covering up with long sleeves, especially in hot weather. You know, as it begins to get warm, when you see, you know, some, sometimes that's just a fashion thing. But I've learned over the years, you know, if it's July and, and, and I see a young lady wearing long sleeves, there's always a, you know, there's a part of me that's just a little bit of a red flag, right? Like, I just want to see if I can catch her when she pulls the sleeves up a little bit, right? And just see if you can look for some of those things. 
uh, needing to be alone for, for long stretches of time, all right, especially in the bathroom or the bedroom when the door closed, especially if the door at your house, you know, different people work different way, but uh, not everybody closes their bedroom doors all the time. So if it's a bedroom door that's not usually closed and all of a sudden it starts getting closed for long amounts of time, that's kind of a red flag that something may be going on that you want to check into. Uh, isolation can be a warning sign. Irritability, all right. I know sometimes that just kind of comes, right, with, with, with that age group, with teenage and even college, as you're still just kind of your body's adjusting and changing through puberty and all those different things that go on. But if you notice it especially ramping up or you notice a change from the way things have been, all right, that can sometimes be a, that. Uh, first aid equipment in the bedroom is a big one. There's a little, if you find a little first aid kit as a parent or grandparent in there, or they ask for a first aid kit and you're not sure what they're going to do with it, especially if it has stuff like Band-Aids, if it has antiseptic ointment, those kind of things, right? Because those are things that they'll cut and then they'll want to cover it up and make sure it doesn't get infected, whatever it may be. Uh, broken or disposable razors, that's something you have to watch out for. Uh, you know, you'll get the razor, right? Break the disposable razor open because it's plastic to, to be able to get the razor blade out of that. Uh, for those who, who actually do the cutting and, and want to use a razor blade for that. And then if you see super glue, and that sounds kind of weird, but people who are like paramedics and EMTs, I mean, they'll tell you uh, that's a great way to take a wound that's bleeding and stop it from bleeding really quickly is to put that super glue on there. It'll help seal that off. And so if you see super glue on somebody's body uh, in a place that looks like a cut and you see that fairly often, are in weird places uh, are what looks like, you know, like just a straight line that you're like, you haven't really been doing anything, right? That can be um, a red sign for you. So what do you do and not do if you think you know somebody, have a student or know a college person or even an adult because this is not uncommon for adults. It's just not as common as it is with uh, this younger generation, do's and don'ts, all right? Act calm, don't freak out. Just take a deep breath, right? Uh, as a parent or a grandparent, you find something out like that, you just kind of want to take a deep breath because you don't want to scare anybody, right? You don't want to make them not open up. You want to establish that relationship so you can have that conversation. So don't freak out. Uh, be confident in talking with them. Be assured, right? You're going to be nervous about that. But to sit down and just begin to sort of have that conversation, like as someone who loves and cares. Uh, show, show empathy. Try to put yourself in that person's shoes, Try to relate, try to remember, as hard as it may be, what it was like when you were a teenager. Right. Truly, I, and, I, and I have a daughter who's 16, I have a son who's 11. We're foster parents, so we have a couple of uh, extras in our house right now that, that we're trying to care for and be Jesus to, because that's something we feel like God has called us to do. Working with students for 20 years, have seen a lot of changes in youth ministry over my 20-something years in youth ministry. I, I truly believe that this generation of students, teenagers and college students, may have it more difficult than any other in history because technology has changed things. It has some for the good, but some for the worse. And in some ways, while, while some things have not changed in being a teenager, some things have. And I think there's a reason that we've seen a rise in some of the things that we have, like cutting and self-harm, and a lot of that is due to that. And I'm not an anti-technology guy and all that, but, I'm, but I am saying you're, you're, you're not being truthful or aware if you don't think that technology has changed things. Um, and so to, to, to just hit the pause button, the timeout button, right, and try to put yourself in the shoes 
of that person and try to see things from their perspective. Uh, if it's somebody that you're trying to help that's not in your family, to try to understand their family situation and put yourself in their shoes, to understand and try to put yourself what they face day to day in the classrooms, in the hallways, in the extracurricular activities from the pressures of studying. Um, it, it, it's a different time. It is. Uh, and be direct and supportive, all right? Don't, don't belittle, right? But, but listen to what's going on, try to empathize, and then find, begin to try to figure out and find some ways to get some help or to be supportive of folks who are uh, in that boat struggling with that. Here's some don'ts. Do not panic. I've got that in capital letters, but feel free to circle that, put a star by it, okay? All those things. You know, the worst thing you can do is, you wait, you're doing what? All right? Just take a deep breath. It'll be okay. All right? But don't, don't panic. Don't have that freak out moment. Okay, don't judge or criticize. Don't show pity. Show empathy. But don't show pity. Don't look down upon them. All right? And if it's an immediate situation, right, don't leave the person alone until they're safe. Sometimes they can be in the situation. You may catch them in the act of doing that. So you, you, obviously you don't want to leave them in a situation that, where they can continue that if they're in the middle of doing that. So a couple, just a quick first aid thing, should that happen to you, all right, if you walk in on somebody and they've done that. And it is possible, it, I haven't honestly ran into it a whole lot, I haven't heard a whole lot of stories of people who were, were cutting and then actually were on the brink of death and ended up being more like a suicide situation instead of a cutting type situation. But should you be in that situation, a couple things, don't panic, stay calm, right? Uh, you know, if you're in doubt, call an ambulance. Uh, you know, if there's a lot of bleeding, try to control the bleeding, just basic first aid stuff. Uh, obviously, you want to call 911. And then if, you know, if the wound or the cut's not life-threatening, then just treat it as you would, you know, a normal cut. Take care of that aspect of it, the physical aspect of it, and then beginning working on the rest of it. So a couple things for getting help, providing some hope. Um, the response needs to be relational. That can be outside of Jesus, obviously, Okay. But folks who, who deal with this, who struggle with this, they need solid relationships in their life from people who can listen to them, who can talk with them, who can give them some guidance, who can help them uh, with that pain. The next one, contacts a licensed and a trained, I would suggest, Christian counselor. Okay? Um, counselors can be very helpful, but if they're coming from a biblical worldview, they're going to be able to point them in a direction that a normal, I say normal, but that a regular counselor would not, right? Because you know as well as I do, I'm assuming since you're here at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, that you know as well as I do that Jesus is the ultimate source of healing, right? Like they, that's what they need. That's where they need to find their identity. That's where they're going to find their source. That's where they're going to find their strength. That's where they're going to discover really who they are. That's where they're going to discover their purpose. So while there's a lot of psychology that goes into this, it's not all psychological. There is a spiritual element that certainly needs to be addressed. And so a Christian counselor can offer that, that a non-Christian or non-biblical-based counselor would, will not uh, offer to them. And then if you can find somebody actually who is trained in, in, in self-injury, that's even better. Uh, we've got a great resource in Hot Springs, one of the therapists I mentioned that I was talking to. Uh, she is not just a counselor for the school. She's a believer. She goes to our church, but she is also specifically trained in trauma counseling. So she is great for traumatic type stuff. So she knows a ton about cutting and self-injury and some of the things that the students she works with at the middle school and the high school 
uh, there deal with. So if you have somebody who's trauma-based, that's even better. Uh, a little harder to find a Christian-based trauma-trained specialist, all right? But if you can find one of those, that's, that's awesome. And then uh, don't let the person talk you out of it, right? You know as well as I do, not just with this, but a lot of times with addictions, people think they can handle it themselves, they can get it under control, but don't buy into that. Uh, you, people who think this way can't fix themselves because a lot of times they need to be taught how to process emotions in a way that's healthy, not in a way that's harmful. Uh, there may be some family dysfunction that they need to, to, to learn, uh, unlearn how, how they are relating, and they need to learn correct ways to relate and communicate, to find help. They need to learn what the triggers are. They need to learn coping mechanisms. They need to learn situations that will make them feel that way. Um, and so they, they need someone who's trained to help walk them through that, teach them how to do that. But they also need some loving adults in their life who are just there that they can lean on, that can be a resource for them, uh, uh, a help and an encouragement. So um, if you want to know more, this is the book I would recommend. There's, there's some books out there. But this is a book called Hope and Healing for Kids Who Cut by Dr. Marv Penner. You can get it off, uh, you know, if you have a local Christian store here, then they could order it if they don't have it in stock. Um, you know, a lot of your online retailers will have them as well. It's put out by Zondervan. It's put out through Youth Specialties. Um, the subtitle of the book is Learning to Understand and Help Those Who Self-Injure. And it's really good. This is by Marv Pinner, one of the guys I, I said that I got some information from. Um, he just does a great job breaking everything down. I'll have it up here. You're welcome to come look at it and thumb through it and look at the table of contents if you want to when we get down here in just a couple minutes. Um, but a really, really good resource. As you can see, it's not a, it's not a huge book. There's like 100-something pages in it, I think. Yeah, so about 140 pages. But, uh, I mean, you could easily read it in one reading if you had a couple hours and wanted to sit down or, you know, a chapter a day, whatever. Um, but a really, really, really good resource. So I'll try to leave a little bit of time at the end. We've got maybe five or ten minutes, I think, we'll, we'll take a break before uh, we get to the 11 o'clock service. Questions, thoughts, comments? Again, I know that's a very academic approach, so it's not my favorite way to approach things. But in truth, this is more of an informational thing, quite honestly, just making people aware. Um, Because, again, it is so new. If you talk with somebody who worked in a facility, a psychiatric facility, even 25 or 30 years ago, they'll tell you cutting was nowhere on the radar. They just lumped everything together with suicide. Uh, So it's really just this last generation that there's begun to be this distinction between suicide and self-harm or or cutting, self-injury whatever, all those terms are sort of interchangeable. Yes, ma'am. Is there any correlation at all between self-harm and tattooing? Is there any, okay, her question is, is there, is there any correlation at all between self-harm and tattooing? Not that I have ever seen, uh, because um, the idea, again, behind self-harm and self-injury is more of a control issue, more that release of emotions, getting those endorphins, uh, feeling uh, there's, Again, that control aspect of it, feeling that release, uh, whereas with tattoos, a lot of times it's more about making a statement about who you are. Um, you know, tattoos are, are, are usually not random. You'll run across a few of those. I ran across a guy uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about tattoos somewhere, uh, and he said, I, I know you said they aren't usually random, but let me tell you how I got one of mine. And it was a really random deal, right? It was a deal where he went to this tattoo place, and you paid like 50 bucks, and you had to and they give you this card, and whatever's on the card is what you have to get for the tattoo. And if you don't get it, then they won't ever do another tattoo for you again. So it's like, I kind of had to get it. And I was like, really? Okay, whatever. All right. <laughs> I was like, I don't know that I would do that. Um, 
but most of the time, tattoos are very well thought out. You know, usually it's a great way, regardless of how you feel about tattoos, it's a great way to hear somebody's story, right? If you see a tattoo that doesn't make any sense, you know, I, I love to ask people, tell me that story. Like, what's this? Because it's a great way to get insight into people. And so um, usually tattoos are more recreational, if you will. Uh, I've never made anybody get a tattoo because I said I just want to be stuck with needles a whole lot. Um, but that's a great question because there is some overlap there as far as the needles and that kind of stuff. But as far as I know, and I've never met anybody or read anything, there's a correlation between that. All right, that's good. Good question. Yes, good question. Yes. Okay. Okay, good. I thought about bringing that up while ago. It came to mind, but I didn't say it, so I'm glad you asked. So um, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, if you look at culture, there's all these subcultures that go on. Right, so uh, high school, junior high, middle school is a great example of that. So everybody has a table, right? Yeah, the, the, the jocks and the athletes have their tables. The, the, the band people have their tables. The cheerleaders have their tables. The, the, you know, whatever, the artists have their tables. The rebels have their tables. And so you do get these little pockets of subcultures in the teenage world, in the college world, where it seems like there's groups of cutters who run around. Uh, not to be too stereotypical, because I'm not a fan of that in youth ministry, because it happens too much, but there, there are certain um, personality types of students, certain subcultures, that uh, certain styles of music, certain styles of dress, uh, who there seems to be they seem to run together in groups. I think the reason behind that a lot of times is because because there's a lot of similarities about low self-esteem or uh, ha- having just family issues, uh, family dysfunction, uh, not being able to know how to process those emotions. They seem to sort of run together, folks who sort of have similar backgrounds and similar stories, you know, travel in packs, uh, the same as people who love band travel in packs, same as people who love art, travel in packs, right? And so you, you will sort of get these pockets where almost everybody in that particular group is a cutter in some way, shape, or form. And then you'll get groups where, like, nobody does it. Um, and so it, it's kind of interesting to see how there is that sort of band together. And then sometimes, like Carmen said, people will get pulled into that. They may not be interested in that because everybody else is doing it. They begin to try that and experiment with that as well. Um, while we're on that topic, there's a, a couple of different things to know about um, where cutting happens. There, there are really two different places. One is the very obvious places where you'll see it on the arms, you'll see it on the hands, you may see it on the lower legs, like when people wear shorts. That's Usually the arms are much more common though. But for people, honestly, who are very serious cutters and don't want anybody to know, they'll they'll cut in places you'll never see. The inner thigh is a big place for people who really want to hide that. Uh, There are some other places in that area for people who are what we would call extreme cutters that they'll actually cut uh, their 
private areas and that kind of stuff. That's rare, that's extreme, but that does happen. But you have a majority of people who either they will cut in places that are visible, like the arm, and they'll cover it up with long sleeves, or they'll go for places that they can't see, like the feet, or especially the inner thigh, because nobody ever, even when you wear shorts, right, that's not visible. And so those, that's a lot harder to detect, and that's where as a parent or uh, somebody who may be a close friend, right, who would, who would be able to, to see clothes or to see them, you know, as they are just wearing a towel out of the shower or whatever in your own, ha- own household, some things just to kind of be aware of as far as ways that that is covered up sometimes. Okay, good, good question. Anything else? Um, so the, uh, the, the question was saying that was coming more common. What does that look like statistically? Um, it's hard to tell um, in, in part because you do have some of those cutters that hide it and really they, it goes on for years and nobody knows. Um, it seems to be growing. Like there seems to be more people doing that. Part of that I think is some of the sub, subcultures that are there. That's just kind of a fashionable thing. Whereas instead of partying or instead of doing drugs, they cut. Uh, but part of that I really think is because this is still really fairly new. For so long in psychology, it was just lumped together with suicide that there's still, I think, a lot of people trying to figure, sort of figure that out. Again, this is really the first generation. Uh, my generation dealt with that a little bit, but not a whole lot in part because you still have that. I mean, it, was, it wasn't until the late 90s, early 2000s that in the psychology community, they really began to differentiate between cutting and suicide. And so this generation that's coming up of teenagers and college students is that first generation where they're really observing it as a separate phenomenon that goes on. Um, so I think we'll know more in another generation by the time this generation that's coming up has kids. I think we'll know a ton more uh, about that. But it, it does kind of seem to be growing more commonplace. The interesting thing is it used to be more of a quiet thing. Now, not so much. It's not near as quiet. It doesn't have the stigma, if you will, that it used to have. Uh, in some places, it seems to be maybe even a little bit of a badge of honor, just like some people would say, hey, I went out and partied this weekend and, you know, got drunk and rocked my face off type stuff. Some people would say, hey, you know, cutting, that's my thing. Yeah, good question. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the question is, like, sometimes uh, people are born with a propensity toward, like, alcoholism or something like that because of family. Is this something that people are born with? Not that I know of. I haven't seen anything like that. Um, I don't know that that would be something people were born with as far as an addiction. It doesn't seem to be something that can be passed on, per se. It seems to be something that is more um, environmental than it is hereditary. It seems to be, because you have that list of commonalities, it seems to be something people learn as a coping mechanism as opposed to something that they just are automatically seem to have a, a propensity or a weakness to. I hadn't thought about that, but I haven't seen anything that talks about it being that way. But could we find that out? I mean, that's a possibility you know, as, as we get another generation or two under our belts and, and study this a little more. But it's, at least right now, it all seems to be more situational. Okay. Yes, ma'am.
Okay. Um, so the, the question was, and somebody who's younger, like 9, 10, 11 years old, are there signs that can, that can let you know that somebody may end up doing this? Is that what you're asking? Um, my guess would be to look at that list of warning signs would probably be your best indicator. Because again, most seem to do this as a control thing or as something to help them process emotions. So, you know, if you were a, uh, you know, if you had a school teacher of say elementary or middle school age and you had students that, that you know don't come from the healthiest family situations, that could certainly be something that you might want to begin looking for to see as they grow up, as they process emotions, you know, how do they handle anger? How do they handle those, some of those situations? Uh, who are the people that they're hanging out with? You know, what do they think of, of themselves? How do they view themselves? And begin just thinking through that list and looking for some of those warning signs. I don't know that there's a way to specifically say this is a kid who I think is probably going to be a cutter, but I think you could probably have a pretty good idea about some students that you might want to be concerned about. Okay, uh, so her question was, is there uh, possibly any overlap uh, between uh, kids who self-harm and injure and those who are on the autism spectrum? Not that I know of. I haven't heard of any. Um, I guess it's probably a possibility, I would assume. Uh, we've got three, three students in our youth ministry right now that are on different levels of the autism spectrum. Um, none of them are anywhere even near close to this that I have seen, but they also have very supportive, very healthy, very functioning families who are very um, aggressive with getting them treatment and helping them learn how to, to process those things. So could there be some overlap because of the processing and all those kind of things? Yeah, probably so. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, there, there could be, um, but I don't know that that would be like a, a key warning sign. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, she says beside cutting, is there anything that would be classified as self-harm? I would say anything that is done, this is a general statement, but from my understanding, I would say anything that's done to the body to harm it that brings that sense of relief, that brings that sense of control, uh, because that seems to be the common factor, that the reason that whatever is done and however it's done is done is to, to either release those emotions or it's a way of feeling in control. Like, I can't control what goes on around me, but I control what happens to my body. And let me show you how I can control it. Like, I can cut myself, but not in a way that's going to seriously hurt myself. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, like, um, eating disorders, anorexia, uh, uh, anorexia, bulimia. I haven't seen those. Those are, at least right now, in the stuff I read, people I talk to, those are not lumped in with self-harm. Those are, lumped, th those are in, a, in a classification by themselves. But I guess technically you could because that does harm the body. That seems to be um, some of that is a control issue as well. So, yeah, I guess you could put those together. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't heard them talked about together. It's usually more the cutting and the burning and the pulling the hair and the scratching. Um, but I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I'm going to check into that. That's interesting. That's good. Yes, sir. Right. Uh-huh. 
Yes. Right. Yes. 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 His question was, uh, do, does, does it seem like just like when somebody has their first introduction to alcohol or cigarettes, right, like somebody introduces them to that, does it seem to be that, that people are introduced to this idea of cutting from somewhere else? And I would say yes. And that goes back a little bit to what Carmen had asked about. It just, it's, it's almost like these pockets in subculture, and there's some of this peer pressure that some people get into it, not necessarily because they wanted to, but because they're in a friend circle of five or six, and everybody is but them. You know, the friends are like, you've got to try this. It makes you feel really good. And in a way, it kind of does because it releases those endorphins, though it's a very short thing, right, that can become an addictive thing uh, and become some more of a peer pressure idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you, uh, kind of what you're saying was, you know, if you see a student who's hanging out with other students who cut, is that something to obviously be watch out for and maybe even begin, uh, begin aggressive in that conversation with that student? And I would say absolutely. No different than the partying, no different than the drugs, no different than the pornography, any of those kind of things. You know, if they're hanging out with people who are doing those things, there's chances are, pretty good chances are, they're being pressured to be involved or try those things. So I would say absolutely. You know, if you've got a student or know a student or have a friend who, you know, is hanging out with two or three or four cutters, self-harmers, and that person is not, uh, that's a great time to begin to have a conversation like, hey, you know, don't get drawn into this kind of stuff. Um, and we, I mean, I've seen that. We, we've got a couple of girls in the youth ministry right now who uh, are thick as thieves together, and every one of them deal with cutting. Yeah, so there's very much a pressure element to that to kind of watch out for. Look for that. Okay. Yep, that's a good point. Carmen says a great thing to do is... Um, to check, you know, histories on computers, that kind of stuff on phones to look because there are, there's a lot of instructional stuff out there in how they get into that, ways to do it, ways to hide it. So, um, again, technology, there's some great advantages, but there are some, some disadvantages as well. So, you know, again, as a parent, grandparent, teacher, whatever, to be as proactive as you can to engage in that. All right, Bobby's up, which means I got to quit. Yes, so, we need to go ahead good. and make a break. we got guests arriving. We also want to give you an opportunity, if you have a fifth or sixth grader that you would like to bring into the service, we want to make sure you have plenty of time to get over there and check them out, bring them in as we enter into the second half of our worship service and a new conversation. So you guys are dismissed. Go ahead and take that break.